Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 13th part in our series, Rome, the Decline of Democracy. Today, we will be taking some time to discuss the day-to-day -day happenings of some of the ordinary people of Rome. Today, in particular, we'll be discussing what it would have been like to have been born or lived as a slave during this time. Brett, let's take it away. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for having me again. So, very few people in Rome are born as slaves. While it is true that the child of a slave is a slave, regardless of what the other parent was, the, the parents would, would were aware of this. And they would likely, if they were having relations, they would not reproduce. Because, I mean, who would do that, knowing mm. you're condemning your child to slavery? So, it was, so the law was is that if two slaves did procreate, then the child would be... Slave. If, if a if one of your parents is a slave, you're a slave. Wow. So even if your mother or your father is freed, you're you're still a slave. Yeah. So Rome is a war state. There's a, a temple in Rome called the Temple of of Janus that the gates would be closed when they were at times of peace. And they would be opened in times of war, and they were only closed for like a grand total of like a hundred years in Rome's entire you know two thousand year history. Rome is is always at war with everyone for everything. I mean, they're a massive empire in the Mediterranean, constantly expanding, and and the reason I'm telling you this is because when Rome invades your 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 area, they're not just taking your gold they're not just taking your house they're not just taking your livestock they are taking you rome was so efficient at doing this at capturing people to become slaves that as part of the army there would often be like so like ancient war you'd have these things called baggage trains so the front of the army would be the soldiers and then behind them would be the, the wagon train and that would be the people tending to your supplies, the people who built camps, maybe some doctors, probably the generals, the civilians. Mixed in with that baggage train would be uh, people whose job it was to fence slaves off your hands. So like you could they, they would come with you on campaign so that the second you sacked a village and you came home with like you know a family of five in tow you would hand them right over to these people without even having to return back to rome you'd be like here you go here are my slaves they would give you money or something for them and then they would have them shipped home and no fuss to you, you okay know? i have a lot of questions to ask about this now the people that were being conquered they knew they knew full well if they lost they were going to become slaves right oh yeah so that would i, I would imagine that in some ways, I'm wondering, like, it, it would almost pay to be like a martyr in a way, because like, if they knew that this was this wasn't just like, oh, they're going to conquer us and we're going to pay higher taxes. If they knew that they were going to be slaves, I am, I'm almost thinking it's probably better for them to have like fought to the death or something. I mean, they did all the time, and suicide is like a huge thing in 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 the ancient world, killing yourself rather than letting yourself be captured or whatever. And part of it is is an honor thing, but uh, an, another part is is for sure not not wanting to be um, a slave. But slavery in Rome is a little bit different yeah. than slavery in 
we'll call it modern day slavery, which is maybe what you're thinking of when you think of uh, American slavery or even like Middle Eastern slavery. And the second question that I have is when you're talking about this baggage train, so the slaves, so let's just say that they, uh, Rome conquers a foreign territory. Are those slaves then brought back to Rome or are they enslaved in their native um, land and then forced to work there for the empire? Uh, it depends, right? I mean, the fencer would, once he had his product, maybe, I mean, he's, it's an industry. So he would maybe send them home if he had buyers there, uh, or if he didn't have buyers at all, they'd probably go straight home. But yeah, I mean, if, if it's like, so at the beginning of a campaign, those slaves would probably get sent home because uh, you, the area is not secure yet. You're not going to have buyers in this region yet. It's still a wilderness. But like, yeah, if this is like the final battle and you're, you know, it's it's already starting to calm down. Maybe you keep your slaves there and, you know, you're like, oh, in a couple of months, you know, nobles are going to start popping up and they're going to need people to cook their food and clean their houses. So might as well keep them here for a bit, right? When, when someone was taken as a slave, were they taken a slave as like a property of the state and then sold to nobles? Or did the nobles just pluck them right there and call them their own property? Like how, how exactly did that work? Um, so generally you'd have the army would win a battle and then after the battle, they would like retire to you. So the way they would retire usually to like the town that the, the opposing army was trying to protect. And in addition to the captives that they would take from, uh, the, the losing army, they would also like, you know, sweep the city clean. And then those people, and by when I say sweep the city clean, I mean would take them, but for the most part, the possession of them would actually go to like the the the, the higher ups, mm-hmm. the nobles. Then those nobles, so it's like you're at the head of a, a legion, and your legion consists of barbarian mercenaries uh, led by you, a Roman senator. Whatever they capture is is basically yours. Right. You're going to give them some loot because it makes them happy. You're going to let them kind of do what they want in the town because it makes them happy. And you may even give them each a slave or two. But for like the most part, you're going to take all of them. And by take, I don't mean like literally take them. I mean, like they're just like they belong to you. You know, so this is this is kind of like a commission based system here where like I'm a rich senator and then I have this army under my employ. And I'm like, hey, if you guys do a really great job, uh, I'm going to let you keep 10% of the loot and you can keep X amount of slaves or something like that. So that's that's kind of, and then the rest goes to the to the to the rich person financing this. Is that is that how it basically went down? Yeah, kind of. I mean, the in Rome, you'll see a lot of soldiers defecting or being like fiercely loyal to specific generals, especially in in the late Republican era, like the era of Caesar and uh, Gaius Marius and the the Gracchi brothers, even though they're not, uh, Sulla, Sulla would be a better example. Not because they're like so inspiring, although some people would say that they are, maybe they were, but that's irrelevant because really, I mean, they're loyal to the soldiers under Caesar's flag are loyal to Caesar because they all got incredibly wealthy pillaging Gaul. So, the, the, wow, this actually, so in other words, like 
let's say Caesar's there and, and, and you know, you have other generals there. So, well, oh, the other generals are only paying you 10% of the loot that you plunder. I'll, I'll let you keep 30% of it. So he, it's, it's more like, no, 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 I, I wouldn't say that exactly, but uh, that does happen. But this is more of an example of like, you're guarding a fountain in Spain. Your brother is on campaign with Caesar in, uh, in Gaul, and you're getting paid $100 an hour to, to guard this statue while your brother is getting paid $100 an hour to be on campaign. But also, every time they sack a town, he gets to keep whatever he can hold in his hands. Mm. And so he's making serious bank, right? Like you're driving a Toyota, he's driving a stolen Lexus. <laughs> and maybe you're going to start to think to yourself, well, hey, I could I could use a Lexus. I, I'm going to jump ship, basically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and they wouldn't always do it right away. But often what would happen is like, again, especially with Caesar, is that when he was in going to civil war with with the state of Rome, the Roman soldiers would defect to his side because the soldiers on his side were so wealthy and so well off and they loved Caesar so much that the enemy soldiers would think to themselves, they'd be like, I might be on the wrong side here. I'm, def <laughs> I'm defending a bunch of senator. I'm defending a governmental system that actively oppresses me while there's this this guy, this this iconoclast who is uh, this cult of personality who is not only probably going to win because he's a great general, but his soldiers are so well paid and so well fed and they're so happy and he's willing to take me. He said over and over and over again that like if I defect to his side, it'll be no questions asked. Like, why wouldn't you switch? Whoa. Now, this is this is quite brilliant, actually, because if you're if you're in that situation, if you're one of a part of one of these enemy armies, for example, not only are you getting a high paid job, you know, working in Caesar's army, you also are you're not going to become a slave. Like that's one of the most important things. If you know that Caesar's army is going to 100 percent win and you're going to become a slave, it's kind of a no brainer of like, well, hey, why don't I just join this guy's army, become a fellow soldier, then then lose it all and become a slave? I think that's crazy, especially if the place that you're, you know, defending hasn't been all that good to you to begin with. Absolutely. There's different, there's like all sorts of stories about this kind of happening throughout Roman, Roman history. Like uh, there's a really interesting story uh, when after, uh, Antony is, is defeated and Augustus Caesar is uh, is consolidating his power. He has to contend with the third member of the of his triumvirate, a man named Lepidus. And Lepidus is controlling Sicily and he wants he also wants control of, of Spain. If you would think, oh, there's about to be a battle, but what actually ends up happening is Augustus Caesar, he's so beloved by his troops. Uh, because he gives them loot and he gives them victory and because he's the the namesake of Julius Caesar, that all Augustus has to do is like park his camp like nearby Lepidus's camp and and there's mass defections to the point where Lepidus surrendered without even fighting because <laughs> like half his army just deserted in the middle of the night. 
Now, this, I think this is really awesome because I, I think it kind of shows the value of treating subordinates. It shows the value of treating underlings really well. And, and I think that, I think this is something that's kind of missed because it's not just a question of altruism. It's not just a question of, let, let me just be overly generous. It's because you really want that loyalty. And I think, I think it's really something when people are fighting to work for you. I think, I think you can actually attract the, the best minds. Maybe, maybe Caesar could even attract the best soldiers or something because he, because, you know, I guess his benefits package <laughs> was so competitive and so good compared to what everyone else is. And I, I think there's some, some real wisdom in that in treating your subordinates really well, because not only are you just being a nice person, it's also creating that that loyalty and and like you know you don't want them to defect at the first chance and i think if you're treating people on the margins they're going to defect and go somewhere else as soon as they get that opportunity yeah so if you were to ask a roman they would tell you that they have never fought an offensive war in their life it's funny <laughs> their their attitude is really similar to the united states if you were to ask someone in the u if you were to ask a, a hawk in the us like, has the United States ever fought an offensive war? They would say never. Sure. The United States has never been the aggressor in combat in its entire history. The United States has always had a casus belli or a reason for war. Sure. But, a Gulf of Tolkien. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> exactly. So the Romans would say the same thing. But we know that that's not true. Just like it's not true that the U.S. has never been in an offensive war, the Romans did not. Every war they fought was not a noble war of defense. Right? They threw a rock at us. <laughs> yeah, they said mean things about us. They attacked an ally. They were planning bad stuff. It's it's funny, right? How all these defensive wars, like you know, quadrupled the size of Rome in in five hundred years. Yeah, funny that. So they, I mean, the truth of it is that they did fight offensive wars, and when you're fighting an offensive war. It's you, you need, so when you're fighting a defensive war, it's like, it's, it can be enough to be like, you need to fight this war because you need to protect those you love. You need to protect your land. You need to protect your property. But when you're fighting an offensive war, well, people are going to need a little bit more, right? Yeah. Yeah. You're not, you're not at home. So you don't even have that feeling of like, like, oh, the, the bad guys are so close. We really need to like, dig in and, and get this done or, or we're going to be in trouble because you're in foreign you're, you're on foreign soil killing people you don't know for reasons you probably don't understand and yeah you like you said you're you're going to need some kind of benefits package that, that's a brilliant point the the soldiers of rome fight for different reasons throughout history so like early on they are citizen farmers who are beating their plowshares into swords to go to war with the incredible, their incredibly hostile neighbors, the Latins, the Etruscans, these 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 other Italian communities that hate them, the Savines, Savines, right? But and then as time goes on, they go from these like noble citizen farmers to these like I don't want to say arrogant because that's not the right word, but like these aggressive out for glory and gold kind of soldiers. And then as time goes on even further, they're just like the starving masses being put to use. And then as time goes on even further, they're like rent-a-cops 
right? That are being hired by rich people to wage wars for them, right? It's like mm, you mm. start to it starts to become like it's like you know the 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 goths are invading, so you literally just pay fifty percent of the goths to fight on your side, so you don't get overrun, right? And right. those fifty percent maybe go like, well, we're getting paid more by you than we would have gotten if we just pillaged your village. So, yeah, let's do it. Oh, we'll, we'll do it, right? That's kind of the end. That's like the death knell of Rome <laughs> when Rome starts doing that. Because the truth is, is that it's you can only maintain that facade for so long until people start to realize that it's more it's worth it more for them to just take your stuff. Exactly. Right. right. No, no, exactly. Let, let's get back. So you had the option to join the army before you're taken as a slave. Um, not always, but sometimes. Yeah. Some, some, and, and those. OK, so those who were not smart enough or weren't afforded that opportunity, they're now enslaved. What what's going to be there? What's going to be the remainder of their their days going to be like? So it depends, you know, where you're taken as a slave, like uh, to start. Let's start. Let's start with a a more traditional, in the set of like modern slavery kind of role is like, uh, if you're taken as a slave in let's say, Spain, uh, around the year, let's say like ten to fifty A.D., while while Rome is kind of like uh, subjugating and putting down uh, rebellions in the Iberian Peninsula, aka Spain. Um, you're probably not getting shipped back to Rome because what Rome is doing here is they're here for the silver and the gold mines of Spain. And so you're taking, you're a barbarian and you're taken as a slave here. You're getting put right to work in the mines and your life is now being measured in months, not years. It's, it's, it's really bad, right? Very bad conditions, uh, very, like working in dangerous environments, no money. You're not gonna. You're not gonna be able to like do anything about your situation. You're just gonna die underground. Um, and it's funny because um, a lot of historians postulate that like Spain's obsession with with precious metals, gold, yeah, yeah, gold and silver, during the era of colonialization in the 1500s. Is, is driven by Rome's obsession with gold and silver around this era and Rome basically strip mining Spain of all of its metal, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. causing Spain to do two things. One, to develop a lust for gold because you know the, the European countries, Spain, Italy, England, France, they, they, take, they draw a huge amount of their culture, I would say all their culture, from, from Rome so if like if if mommy and daddy like gold, then you like gold too, um, and then but you don't have any because Rome took it all. So now you have this desire for gold and no gold to get. So you have no choice but to take it out on well the next barbarous region, which would be the New World. So yeah, so if you're a victim of invasion uh, in Spain by Rome, then chances are you're going to work in the mines. I right. see. I see. So it's like they they had a need. So basically, your life as a slave would be predetermined by the the resource or the need of the Roman Empire at that particular moment. Yeah, you know, I, I think so. And I also think that 
each region kind of produce slaves of a certain kind. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there are plenty of exceptions to these rules, but like it is a decent rule of thumb to say that like slaves taken in Spain would generally become miners in the Spanish silver and gold mines, right? Sure. Slaves taken in North Africa would often become farmers or forced or conscripted into being sailors. You could North Africa for a long time was the breadbasket of of the Mediterranean. Egypt and uh, the Nile, I would imagine. Yeah, Egypt, Carthage, even uh the like uh Sicily, right? The island of Sicily, same thing. So, all right, let's talk about these miners. Their life was very bad, Aaron. It's it's worse than what we would think of when we think of modern day slavery, Mm -hmm. right? These people were very expendable. They were not even thought of as people. Pushed down into the mines, forced to work until exhaustion, and then they would die. Well, let's, I want to kind of talk a little bit, and this is something that kind of interests me. And I I think we can first kind of zoom in because I think there would be, uh, you know, when we talk about slaves who maybe had it a bit easier, there's probably more of a built-in buy-in, but let's, let's focus now on, on the slaves that had it the worst. And those, would you say that the miners of all the slaves that uh, Rome took, the miners had like probably they're at the bottom in terms of like the worst job possible? I, it's a little editorialized, but yeah, I would say that. I would say the a, a, sla- a minor slave is like the worst thing if, if, that you could end up having to do or be in Rome. Okay. Is there any statistics about like how long someone would last in the mines before they died? Like five years, 10 years? <laughs> I mean, they, they weren't, uh, they weren't really big on keeping statistics like that. Wow. But it's, it was short. Is very short. Is there anything? I'm wondering, like, what they would do because I'm wondering, like, if if because the Roman Empire, you know, lasted, you know, for thousands of years. What, like, how did these people not rebel? Like, that's like we know that there's probably there's no incentive to have children, right? Because if they had children, then their children would also be forced to work into the mine. I'm wondering what's what did they have in place to prevent these people from just going berserk and and rebelling every single day? Was it just like? Um, you know, as soon as you rebelled, you got killed. Was it that brutal? Or was it, was there any kind of like hope? Because I, I think in all of these systems, there's always that like magical 10% chance that you could earn your freedom by doing X, Y, and Z. Was there anything like that there? Or, or how did they I maintain? Mean, there were slave revolts in Rome, for sure. I mean, have you ever heard of this no-name guy named Spartacus? Mm, tell me about him. <laughs> uh, well, I, uh, let me start by saying that I am Spartacus. And, uh, no, no. So Spartacus, for those who don't know, is a really famous Roman slave who lived during the the era of the first triumvirate, and he led a slave rebellion. Right? He was he was part of a group of slaves who were being trained on being gladiators, and he used that training to kind of like rebel and escape and cause a lot of problems for. The Romans to the point where they mm-hmm. had to send real like armies against his slave revolt. It's, it's the slave wars, right? So that Rome did have slave uprisings, but the minor slaves definitely no uprisings because they were beaten down really badly to the point of exhaustion. To the point where how could you rebel? Where are you getting the energy? You like you're you're if you're even seen talking to other people, then you're beat down. How are you forming a rebellion? You know. Mm, mm. Now this this is this is very 
interesting because I, I feel like in the ancient world, sometimes like slavery gets a bit whitewashed. Like we have these ideas of like, oh, well, I owed this person a bunch of debt and then I worked for them for 10 years. And then after working for them for 10 years, I earned my freedom. But what you're telling me is that in Rome, it was pretty much birth to death slavery, no redemption, no no paying back your debt, no getting out of this, no, no, no nothing. So I, I, I feel like this is something that's completely omitted from from the history. I'm talking about mainstream history books. It's always like, oh, you were a slave for seven years and then paid back your debt. And then you started a little farm there on the countryside and everything was okay. So I, well, I find this really interesting that this this actually, as a history teacher, this seldomly kind of gets talked about. Well, we're only talking about the bottom rung of slavery right now. We're going to move up slightly next and we're going to move away from the miners and maybe we're going to go south of Spain to northern Africa and we'll talk about what happens to like the African slaves. And they are going to be forced to work on on farms. They are going to be forced to be sailors, uh, basically working on merchant ships. Their life is a little bit better. Their life expectancy is pretty normal. They're not allowed to own property. They are not citizens, so they don't benefit from things like the bread dole or the wine dole. They don't get to vote. They're not, they're, you know, they're not amazing, but they're definitely not being literally worked to death. And they make a small amount of money that they can use to purchase small creature comforts for themselves. Was there any hope of buying one's freedom for the sailors? Probably, yeah, a little bit. At this rung, uh, a little bit, yes. Romans, Romans definitely have a way out of slavery for certain types of slaves. Slaves who have bought their freedom or have been freed, are um, they're referred to as freedmen. Mm, okay. Right. Um, and they have their own set of rules and rights applied to them. Uh, but they are not slaves. And they're not so citizens either. No, they are not. Uh, they so the, the these these kind of like middle of the road slaves would be like if you had to equate them to modern day, they would be like minimum wage job holders. Probably not going to own property on a minimum wage, and it's slavery, so there's really not really a chance for promotion, so to speak. So assuming you're assuming someone is working, you know, on minimum wage their whole life, you know, probably not going to own large amounts of property. You're probably never going to be like the community leader. You're probably not going to be taking luxurious vacations, but like you can afford maybe like creature comforts here and there, a nice night out to dinner, right? Maybe go to like, you're allowed to do things like, you know, go to public places. You can enjoy like public garden. Now, was there any pathway to citizens or they just, they would remain freedmen and then their children would also just be of the status of freedmen? What you, there is pathways to citizenship, but it's not like, it's not like an established thing where you'd be like, like, oh, I, I passed this test. I'm a citizen now, right? Mm -hmm. You could be granted citizenship and it was usually not you specifically. It was like, they would be like, oh, you know, all the people who lived here at this time, I hereby grant you citizenship. I see. I guess what I find so striking about this is how arbitrary and how random all of all of this because it, it it's 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 kind of like weird because 
we, we have this, this idea of thinking of like, this is in our, in our world, we always like to think of like, oh, well, I could do this. I could do that. I, I could change. I could suck up to this master, but it seems like whether you. Oh, you absolutely could do that. Rome goes through fads of with the rich people. So Rome is never huge on architecture and Rome is never huge on material possessions. Mm-hmm. The Romans are a very hardy people. Uh, what they So how do they show off their wealth? With slaves. That's how they do it. The more slaves you have, the, the more clout you have and whatever. But Rome will occasionally go through these fads where the nobles will show off to each other by freeing their slaves. Ah, okay. Right, okay. like, it's like, look how rich I am. I can afford, I'm a nice guy. I'm freeing all my slaves. I don't need them anyway. There's plenty more slaves where that came from, right? It got so bad at one point. Well, bad, good. Uh, so, so I'm good. I'm going to go with a, a solid good on this one. <laughs> yeah, that Augustus Caesar had to pass laws restricting the amount of slaves that someone could uh, free in a given year because people were messing up the slave economy by freeing too many slaves. Even even the slaves in Spain had a chance of being freed. Probably them. not them, but like the house <sighs> slaves did. Which and we're we're not uh, we're not there yet. We're we're in northern Africa, uh, and also uh, it's kind of the same same deal. You know, uh, you know Sicily, Sardinia, Corsica. Then we're moving over to Greece. Mm-hmm. Uh, Greece and Rome have a, an interesting relationship. Rome kind of like looks at Greece as like its forefather in a lot of ways. Rome, Rome's own um, mythological history comes from Greece. The mm-hmm. Rome's mythical, uh, the mythical founding of Rome is by soldiers from the Trojan War, which is a Greek fable. So Rome views Greece in very high esteem, but Rome is also all business, and they don't, you know, they're. they're they're going to take what they need to take. So what so what happens up happening and and Rome takes slaves from Greece pretty frequently for various reasons, but like a big one would be in the mid 200s BC, uh Greece is having problems with Macedonian kings who are like trying to impose um rulership over the Greek states. Mm-hmm. And the Greeks appeal to Rome to help them. And Rome agrees. And Rome fights and wins the war for them. But then Rome doesn't leave. Ah, okay. Okay. And the Greeks are like, okay, you won. Please go away so we can go back to having our democracy. <laughs> Rome is like, uh, we're just going to hang out and keep an eye on you guys just in case they come back. And also, if you could start paying us to keep an eye on you guys so they don't come back, that would be great. And also, we need you to start following our directions to help protect you so those guys don't come back. And also, we're going to choose who you're following directions from because we can pick the guys who know best how to protect you from the Macedonians. And the Greeks are like, so you're picking the leaders and we're paying money to you and we don't get a say in it. This sounds an awful lot like you're, you're um, annexing us. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. They're like, what? Oh, no. come on. We're brothers, we're sisters. <laughs> but eventually, eventually the farce is, is kind of made irrelevant and, you know, Rome smacks down greece badly so they they actually fight it out though oh yeah and this is kind of a huge as a tangent this is kind of a huge deal when rome beats greece because um before this greece was supposed to be like the spartans were like the greatest warriors the world had ever known Mm -hmm. the phalanx is like 
the Spartan Phalanx is like world famous, and and Rome with its modified uh, troop formation just obliterates them. It's not even close, Aaron. The war is a massacre. You know. Wow, wow, wow. It's kind of weird because you know when we think of the Spartan, we almost think about them these things happening at, at different times in history. Like we think of the Greeks, you know predating Rome, but it's kind of interesting that there was like an overlap between the, the two civilizations like this. Oh, there was. I mean, Alexander the Great is, it, if a lot of like historical what ifs pose the question of what would happen if Alexander the Great, instead of going east on his campaign, if he went west instead, because Rome was around then. So instead of the going towards India. Yeah. Instead of marching towards India, what if he marched towards Spain? Wow, uh, right. that's uh, that's <laughs> it's like Star Wars, um, like legends or something. <laughs> oh yeah, it's, it's, he, it's, he he wouldn't have done it because Rome was like a backwater at the time. But it's an yeah. interesting thing to think about. But the point is, the point I'm making is that they existed. They were around even during Alexander the Great's time. So Rome has the the kind of slaves that come out of Greece are very literate. They're very learned. They're very skilled intellectually. And they, what they, they know they're Plato and Aristotle pretty well. <laughs> that's literally what they're taking as slaves to do, to teach Plato and to teach Aristotle. The slaves that come out of Greece, for the most part, are educators. Uh-huh. They're taken as tutors, teachers, kind of like helping to run businesses, like accountants, I guess, I guess you would say. More and more, as the empire gets older and older, we're going to see the day-to-day of empire work get moved away from the rich, noble Roman senators and onto these literal armies of freed Greek slaves who can read and write and are motivated to be productive, right? Okay. Because they're not ultra-wealthy, set for life already. Now, there's a, a few questions I want to ask here. So, did the did the cultural diffusion of like the Greek gods and, and Greek culture and Greek philosophy is is it Rome taking over Greece that allows that to happen, or was that cultural diffusion going on even before that? Hellenization is going on all the time in this era. It has nothing something about Greek culture causes it to permeate everywhere to the point where it has its own name. I just said it, Hellenization. And it happens before Rome goes to war with Greece. It happens before Rome conquers Greece. And it happens after Greece is an established uh, province of Rome. I mean, it's not a province. It's a bunch of provinces. But the, the Greek territories are, are provinces of Rome. Many old school Romans see Hellenization as a bad thing. They see it as like a corruption of, of Roman youth that they're suddenly interested in. Because remember, the Romans are like a, a hardy people. And now suddenly the Roman the Roman youth are interested in toga in not togas in silk and and poetry and uh, you know these like dalliances you know it's very very hoity toity kind of culture right mm, right um, and then but then others love love the Greek culture uh, Hadrian uh, son of Trajan's and second and third uh, of the five good emperors was sometimes referred to as the Greekling because of how much he loved Greek culture. Okay, so there's already a built-in appreciation in Rome for Greek culture. Like there, there are these brilliant philosophers, thinkers, ideas, religious ideas, all of that stuff is great. And we need to borrow from that. So naturally when Rome goes into Greece, even though 
they kind of have to beat the living daylights out of them. There's still this, oh, there's still this like, do. there's still this like reverence of like, okay, you're kind of a spiritual big brother to us. And that we, we still, we see that you guys are like highly educated. It's kind of, it's kind of like America beating the crap out of Great Britain, but being like, you're still our spiritual father. Like your idea of a Magna Carta of a parliamentary system is kind of bleeding into our way of life. So is there that type of like, reverence that like we we militarily are stronger than you but we do respect that in terms of intellectuals in terms of like um all of these ideas like you you still are like a spiritual big brother to us absolutely rome has a great reverence for greece and when they're conquering them for the most part they are careful not to like really mess up the greek city-states too bad there are a couple of incidents where things get out of hand but they are rel- that they are seen even by the Roman people as like barbaric, whereas the Romans generally don't care what Caesar is doing to the Gauls in Swiss Alpine Gaul. They they do care when when word gets back that like a Roman general allowed his troops to sack a Greek's town, you know it's it's seen poorly. So th- this is so is a, is a lot of thing you know there's a lot of things going on here because. Rome is taking these people slaves and the first the first thing that's coming into their calculus is okay what is the natural resource or what is the natural function of slaves you know for for Spain it's like they've got a lot of silvers and gold we need to to mine the crap out of these people right so that's the yep. first decision if you've got farmland great we're making you farmers if there's if you're near water we're making you sailors because we, we, we can utilize you as being traders and so forth. Yep, and, yep, yep. and then I, I think with, with Greece, there is like that, that reverence to, to them, but at the same time, they're also extra, extracting their cultural capital. So I, I think it's almost- oh, yeah. just, And their money, don't get me wrong. The, the other reason that Rome is careful not to damage the infrastructure of Greece is not just because they love Greece so much, but because unlike Spain, unlike Gaul, which are a bunch of like loosely connected tribes, mm-hmm. Greece is already a, an economic powerhouse. And you don't want to damage that. You want to make them submit to you as delicately as possible. And then just basically, you just want to replace yourself at the top of the pyramid of like, who's in charge. You know what I mean? Like a turnkey business. You don't, you're not trying to tear stuff down. You don't, you don't have any like really special vision for the region. You're just like, I want to, you know, you're paying taxes to this guy. Now you're paying taxes to me. Everything else is business as usual. Keep generating that money. Okay. So you're a Greek slave, which we would argue is like the top of the slave hierarchy. Okay. And you have, you're an accountant, you're a teacher, you're an auditor, you're, you're doing some kind of bureaucratic level work. Yeah. Tell, tell me about, you know, your free time. Did they have more like, I guess, could they own property? Could they, what, what could, what could a Greek they slave do? They still couldn't own property. I mean, it, they couldn't own property in the sense of like, they couldn't be landowners. Mm-hmm. I, I want to be clear about that too. When I said like these slaves can't own property, what I meant was not like you can't buy things at the market. I could like in the sense that like, you know, my, my car is my property, property in the sense of land, can't own land. No slaves can own property, but the Greek slaves make enough money that they have apartments and, and they, they can go out and do things that they want to do. They have real free time. They're not worked to death at all. 
they have respect in the community. They won't be like waiting in line at like a, a restaurant. They're not going to pass up on your name because you're a slave. You know, Got they'll it. recognize you as someone of value to Rome and you'll get kind of that respect, right? Not that there are really a lot of restaurants in Rome, but you, you get what I'm saying. They made money. They drew a salary. And many of them could buy their way out of slavery. And not only could they, they did. It was not that hard when you were a teacher. Usually two, three decades, and you can make enough money to not be a slave. Okay, so you're, you're a Greek slave. You say you're really uh, frugal with your money. You buy your freedom, and then you're also buying your children's freedom as well, right? Like, That's correct. That's a big deal. When you buy your freedom, you're a freedman. Your children are now freedmen too. Even even if your children were born. So let me get this straight. So let's just say I'm not. I'm not sure about that. Okay. Okay. So you have to have your freedom first before having kids. Because you can't, yeah. you can't, I see, I see. It's not like, Pro- it's, it's not like if your dad gets free, then everyone like retroactively, like you're. <laughs> well, often that'll be, often that'll be part of the purchase. I see, I see, right? I see. You're purchasing freedom for your family. And then it's like, and the funny thing is that you purchase your freedom and you get all these rights and you're, you're no longer a slave, but you, your life doesn't change that much. You'll, you'll go to your master and you'll be like, I have $5,000. I'd like to purchase freedom for me and my wife. And he's like, great, let's do it. He takes your money. You're now free. And he's like, okay, see you tomorrow to tutor my kids. And you're like, yeah, sounds good. Now, now under this system, is it the same system as the sailors where they get the status of freedmen or did they have a better chance of, of yep. getting citizenship? No, 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 they become freedmen. And in, late, in the late empire, the Roman government is filled with these learned freemen mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who who are running. So early on, the empire is run by the top, the emperor, and then he has nobles who he delegates to. And then those nobles live in the provinces, and then the nobles in those provinces are like in charge of those provinces, right? Later on, it's more... Uh, dominating and you have the emperor is in charge and then he has like an army of of bureaucrats who run everything and the nobles are not in charge of anything they're just rich people Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know more and more as time goes on the emperors will realize that the nobles can't be trusted to run the day-to-day they're either too stupid too conniving or too um uninterested to do this and so more and more the task is going to fall to these these armies of bureaucrats. Now this is so now this is like kind of almost a recipe for disaster. It's like you have all of these educated Greek freedmen and it's it's a frustrating situation because the best that they can possibly do for themselves is purchase their freedom, but that's it. There there is like a glass ceiling that they're hitting right now. No matter how sure. hard they work in the bureaucracy, it's like they're never going to be a noble. They're never going to have the opportunity for them or their children to actually um, become a citizen. So I, I and right. and they know a hell of a lot. They they are the brain power behind how the Roman Empire works. Oh yeah, I mean they're they're the glue at this point. And they're important. They're really important because we're going to see that they, the, their bureaucracy sticks around after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. And in fact, I always kind of chuckle to myself when because uh, they they'll eventually form the government backbone of the Byzantine Empire. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. And then they will eventually this this cast of people will 
basically form part of the middle class, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? They're they're going to become the bankers, the accountants of of the next the next era of human history. Yes. They're going to teach their children math. They're going to teach their children Greek. They're going to teach their children how to read, and then their children are going to become bankers. Mm-hmm. You know, um, they're really important. And so it's like I always chuckle because it's like they're the the Byzantine bureaucracy. Like that's like kind of like that word Byzantine in English is like a bit of a, a an insult. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. Uh, yeah, like uh, usually we say like, oh, the the Byzantine bureaucracy. It's like we're saying it as like it's co- overly complicated. Is usually yeah, the way and it get... was. They did have a complicated bureaucracy, but <laughs> I think it's funny because the the bureaucracy of of Byzantium was was excellent. You know, like they're like they, it's one of the most efficient and and prosperous states for a, for in the world for a really long time. Thanks yeah, to their bureaucracy. Yeah, yeah I think we kind of just throw that out when some when someone doesn't want to fill out a simple form for the DMV. We're like, oh my god, this Byzantine kind of bureaucracy, I can't handle it. <laughs> like you, you wish this was a Byzantine bureaucracy. <laughs> like... I really want to kind of just focus on you know the fact, and then this is what I find the most shocking about all this, and I find it that really how capricious and random your lot as a slave was, and I I think that's kind of worth mentioning that. I don't think if it's you, random at all. Are you are you an enemy of Rome? Congratulations, you're probably going to be a slave. But hold on now. <laughs> the the thing that I find random about it is that if you were maybe the word lucky I think is 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 kind of the word because I think that your life of a slave is basically based on where you happen to be born. If you happen to be born in ancient Greece and you had you were fairly educated, your life was considerably better than someone who just happened to randomly be born in Spain and then spent the entire duration of their life as a minor. And, and I think that's, that, that, that is something that, that is really just striking, that where you were born pretty much determined what type of slave you are. And that, you know, that's highly unsettling, especially, I mean, I think our modern mind just you know, always our, our modern mindset is like, okay, if I was thrown here, I would do this. I would do that. I, I would, I, I could just imagine people thinking from a modern mindset, okay, if I was born as a minor slave, I would quickly start stealing books and learning on the side and build my way. But I'm like, no, 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 no. If you were born as a, if you were born in Spain and became a, a slave in the mine, you were not stealing books and secretly doing this and that. You were pretty much sent, it was pretty much a death sentence. This is, I mean, it should come as no surprise, Aaron. This is not change so much in the modern day where where your socioeconomic status when you're born overwhelmingly predicts your socioeconomic status when you die mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yes there are rags to riches stories yes there are spoiled rich kids who who lose it all and die in a pauper's grave but overwhelmingly you the way you're born is likely going to be the way that you die it's still like that today and today we pride ourselves we pride ourselves especially in america on this idea of like oh anyone can do anything you just have to put your mind to it we teach that to our our children so it really shouldn't surprise you i mean like people who think to themselves like oh if i went back in time I would be able to be a king in no time. They're underestimating how smart and resourceful and 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 all that good stuff the 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 people of the ancient world were, and they're overestimating their own ability to be mobile. I mean, like you can't even do it in in the modern day. Yes. Right. Yes. What makes you think you could do it back then, where there was even less mobility? If you can't even do it now, when there's 
some mobility. What makes think you think you could do it when there was no mobility? I think I think that's a really um, excellent point. And you know, a, a lot of my um, graduate work was actually studying this very same exact phenomenon where. 90% of an offspring's uh, social economic success is based on their parents, meaning that they have with like somewhere between 85 and 90%, the offspring or the child will replicate whatever status their parents were. were. So if oh, you, yeah. so, and, and it, it's something that doesn't, I think that we have a lot of mythology. I think we have a lot of these ideas of anyone can just work their way up this elevator. Anyone can just develop some rarefied skill. And then, okay, sure. I think that there's some truth in that, but only to a certain degree, you know what I mean? Like even, even to let's say become a doctor or a surgeon, well, you kind of need to have some kind of like support structure for uh, college, you know, 10 years of, you know, of when you add your like medical school and you add your residency and you add all of these other like little, this, this whole journey, in some ways, I'm just thinking to myself, well, okay, maybe that's the plight of an educated Greek slave who, you know, already had all of these like advantages in life, you know? So you, you nailed it. That's exactly it, Aaron, is like, you, you, you are already educated, you, you already had some money, and they, the, these people saw you, and they were like, okay, this person is, is stable and safe, and they can read already, and they already can do math, and, you know, I'm going to slide you into this, into this, this position, because, because you're already mostly there, it's less upkeep for me, whereas, like, it's the same thing. Like I said, it's the same thing today. Like a lot of engineering jobs uh, can be done by like engineering programming in general is like not that hard to learn. Uh, the people who end up getting the programming jobs don't get it because they're just so brilliant that they can figure out how to do like really basic uh, logical structures. Like if this, then that they, they get it because they already had the social structure set up where they were able to like, you know, put on a nice suit. Maybe they went to college, so they know like the proper etiquette in interviews. Mm-hmm. There's like a way that like people of different classes talk to each other. That That's is... awfully humble of you to say. I mean, I'm I'm definitely in awe of engineers, and <laughs> um, regardless of of where they're um where they started in life, but. I, I think you're right, though, overwhelmingly, that why I think this is so important is I, I think to kind of end this conversation, I really want to talk about the philosophical implications of how we view the value of human life. Because I, I think that when the Romans saw somebody in Spain and they saw some uneducated uh person living in a tribe, they looked at that person and they they did not see any human being. They didn't see anyone with a family. They didn't see anybody who may have higher ambitions. They didn't see anybody who was the same as that. Like they, they literally looked at those people and said, these people are not the same as us, just, just, just not. And therefore, it is perfectly acceptable to sentence them to work in this mine uh, for the, the rest of their life and their children, by the way. And I, I think there's still like a resonance that we still have with us today. I, I still think that that fundamental component of human nature is still still with us today. How, how does that sound to you, Brett? Or do you think that we've become a bit more egalitarian or a little bit more 
more open to, to what we consider to be the value of human life. Well, I think when people say the value of human life, what you're actually asking is where, how do you weigh people's needs over society's needs? Mm-hmm. And you can get really carried away in either direction. So like way number, like you can go like really hard on the socialist side. People have no value beyond what they can contribute to society. And then you can go really hard on the libertarian side and be like, society doesn't matter at all. All that matters is, is, in, is the individual. And so I think that with ironically with slavery and especially with these miners what you get is kind of this like weird distorted socialist view where they're like you're going to work in the mines because society needs people to work in the mines and you not wanting to work in the mines does not go above the needs of society they're missing out on human potential here. And it's, 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 I wouldn't call it socialism. That's why I said like distorted, right? Uh, Cause it's, Rome was definitely not a social society, but it's this idea of like, someone needs to do this for the good of everyone. And it's gonna be you. The only problem is, is that quote, everyone is not really everyone. It's just the rich, right? See, I kind of see, I kind of lean more on the side of like a pragmatic uh, capitalism sort of at work here. Um, and, and the reason I say that is that, oh, your your geography has these raw materials and therefore we need you to extract those raw materials. And and, and like, I, I kind of, see, and, you know, I kind of see everyone having uh, a certain utility that's being extracted. Like, oh, wait, you you Greeks over here are really skilled in math. Awesome. We really need some architects to help build our our, our aqueducts and so forth. So I, I kind of see that that very pragmatic. And maybe maybe you know. I just, mean, what you just said is a, an alternate way of saying from each according to his ability to each according to his needs, which is Karl Marx, eighteen seventy five. So there's this idea in in political science that when the authoritarian spectrum gets high enough, extreme forms of communism and extreme forms of capitalism at, at some at some point actually collide with one another. Like they they actually they they actually collide with one another. And again, maybe in communism, like in the most extreme version of, of com and I wouldn't I wouldn't even say necessarily socialism, but but pure communism in the sense that we are going to extract the maximum value of each citizen for the collective good, right? Would you say that would be a fair, a fair description of communism in its like purest form, right? Like where, where yeah, we're, that's that's the goal. And I and I think that the most extreme version of capitalism, the most extreme laissez-faire version of that capitalism, would also be utilizing each worker based on their potential or their built-in potential. Yeah, for, I, I for, for their value. I always felt, and I could be wrong about this because unlike you, I'm not a political scientist at all. I, I barely even know the difference between socialism and communism. So that's a big disclaimer there. But I always felt like both capitalism and communism want the same thing, which is <laughs> they want a society. They want a society where everyone can work together to flourish. They want cooperation. The difference is that communism says we need someone at the top to delegate roles 
because people cannot be trusted to make these decisions correctly themselves. Mm-hmm. And capitalism says we don't need anyone at the top. It'll all kind of work itself out automatically based on the free market. Like if someone is not good in a specific role, then uh, you know they they won't thrive. They won't survive. They'll get kicked out of that role who someone by someone who's better and everything will end up being right with the world anyway. In fairness, that, that sounds really good. Like that, that sounds like really, really, really fair on paper. Oh yeah, but then no it, government structure exists to sound awful. Yeah, yeah, that, that sounds awesome on paper. But then when we look at the, the example of like your life in the, in the coal mines in Spain versus a highly educated Greek citizen, maybe that person that was working in the coal mines had the potential to become a teacher or a doctor. Maybe, maybe that person in the coal mines, you know, had that potential. And I think that's where capitalism just looks at how much, like, I think uh, capitalism makes a, a, a sort of calculus decision of like, oh my goodness, it's going to be way too much work to kind of build you up from from the gutter and and build you up into this educated citizenry and that's just inefficient it's just it's inefficient to put in that kind of legwork and that kind of investment it's better to just kind of pluck from this highly educated populace and just use it because it's already there it's already a built-in populace of educated people that we don't have to invest as much and i think when we look at public policy, we make these kind of decisions all the time. Like, oh, wait, wait, great, you know, affluent, you know, uh, th- this this affluent suburb has a great school district or so forth. Why invest in this, you know, inner city public school when we already have this built-in uh, school over here that's already producing like highly educated citizens that will be more than sufficient to run our major corporation? Uh, we do this all the time in, in modern day. Where do you think our, our phones, our clothes, like where do you think they come from? They're 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 made by a basic basically a slave caste that have been judged by capitalism to be not like you said not worth the effort of building up. Someone needs to assemble these phones. Right now, this is where we're very uh, I think similar to Rome in the sense that because we don't necessarily interact with these people and we don't necessarily see somebody you know thousands and thousands thousands of miles away it's really easy to forget all of that, right? It's really, it's extremely easy to be like, oh, not in my sight, not in my purview. And even even those Greek slaves, those Greek slaves, for example, would enter the master's house. Hi, how are you doing? Good to see you. Oh yeah, wife is okay. Like there's that like human interaction that's going on in the household. And right off the bat, that's enhancing your level of humanity. Just the fact that you're entering someone's home and having those daily interactions of like, you know, oh, oh did you see, did you see the latest uh, gladiator fight? Yeah, it was really awesome. You know, that's already making you more human. Whereas if you're just some nameless face in a coal mine in Spain, no one's seeing you, no one's interacting with you. So it's so much easier to exploit that kind of labor because there isn't that built-in communication. There isn't that built-in rapport that's being built at all. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Sorry, I wish I could end this episode on something positive, but <laughs> it, it, there's there's nothing positive to say about the life of a slave, regardless of of where your caste or your system was. Uh, Brett, th- thank you for for handling this very delicate topic with me today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Aaron. Really. 
This concludes the 13th part in our series, Rome, The Decline of Democracy. I'm Aaron Azrod.